0: Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Marian Tupi. I'm a senior policy analyst here at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Since his election as pope in 2013, Francis has become a much-loved figure. He's a man of compassion and humility, and his focus on the poor and the oppressed is admired throughout the world. As a spiritual leader, Of uh, 1.3 billion Catholics uh, the Pope enjoys great influence and as such his pronouncements and beliefs are clearly worthy of discussion and analysis. Today we shall look at two issues associated with Francis's pontificate, the state of humanity and the role of, of capitalism in bringing that state of humanity about. The common perception is that the Pope is troubled by both. In Evangelii Gaudium, he calls on us to remember that the majority of our contemporaries are barely living from day to day. A number of diseases are spreading and inequality is increasingly evident." He has also repeatedly criticized what he perceives as the deification of the market and unbridled pursuit of money. Our panel will help us understand whether the Pope truly believes that the world is becoming worse and capitalism is to blame, or whether his views have been misinterpreted. Before introducing the panel, uh, let's look at some data. Some of you may be familiar with uh, humanprogress.org, which is a Cato Institute website, Uh, where we try to ascertain the state of humanity uh, by using or looking at different uh, statistics. So let us briefly consider four issues which are of uh, importance uh, to the Pope. Wealth, health, poverty, and inequality. Uh, This graph shows you the evolution of income per capita around the world since the birth of Jesus in AD 1 to uh, 2010. Now, as you can see, between... Year one and about 1800s, uh, incomes per capita were roughly uh, were roughly stagnant, uh, doubling um, from about three dollars per capita per day to about five dollars per capita per day by 1800. Then, in 1800, between 1800 and 2010, incomes per capita rise tenfold to about fifty dollars per day. Uh, I think, partly because of uh, Industrial Revolution and uh, and, uh, trade. Now, together with increasing incomes has come about the fall in absolute poverty. In 1980, according to the Brookings Institution, 50% of humanity lived uh, in absolute poverty. By 2010, uh, that number has declined to about 14%. And by 2030, it is expected absolute poverty will have been eradicated. Now much of the fall in global poverty has to do with the rise of Asia, um, primarily two of the world's most populous countries, China and India. Following liberalization in China in 1978, incomes have grown 13, 13fold. Uh, following liberalization in India, in 1992, incomes have risen threefold. And the rise of China is, of course, connected to the issue of inequality. Uh, During communism in China, um, there was a very high degree of equality of income but also high degree of poverty when people didn't have any incentive to work um, because they couldn't keep the money they earned, uh, they didn't produce very much. Um, But because of liberalization, inequality has grown. And that has been the case for many countries in the world. Within countries, inequalities has grown. On the other hand, inequality between peoples, which is to say between individuals in the world, has actually declined. And that is because many poor countries, including China, are increasingly catching up with the global average. Lastly, let's look at health. Now we could be talking about declines in infant mortality or child mortality or maternal mortality. We could be talking about advances in the war against tuberculosis, uh, HIV, AIDS, and even cancer. But the best um, approximate measure of health around the world still remains life expectancy. Now, for most of the existence of our species, which is to say from about 200,000 years ago until about 100 years ago, the life expectancy around the world was about 25 years In 1900, in the richest countries in the world, which is to say Europe and North America, life expectancy was only 50 years. Well, fast forward to 2010 and global life expectancy was 71 years. So how do we reconcile some of the data with some of the Pope's views? And to help us understand Pope Francis, I want to welcome our panel today. John Garvey, who is going to be our first speaker, is the president of the Catholic uh, University of America. He was the dean of Boston College Law School from 1999 to 2010. In uh, 2008, he was the president of the Association of American Law Schools. He has practiced law with the firm of Morrison and Forrester in uh, San Francisco and taught taught at Notre Dame, uh, Michigan, and Kentucky. He's the author or co-author of numerous books, including Religion and the Constitution, and Sexuality and the U.S. Catholic Church. From 1981 to 84, he was the assistant to the Solicitor General of the United States, and he was elected to the American Law Institute in 1982. Please welcome John Garvey.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me down here. I've never been to the Cato Institute. I'm surprised. I have so many friends who work here. I, uh, so let me let me begin with a little quiz. I want you to uh, answer mentally the following uh, three questions. Who who said this? First, you are not making a gift of what is yours to the poor man, but you are giving him back what is his. The earth belongs to everyone, not to the rich. This was Pope Paul VI in. Propolorum Progressio, quoting St. Ambrose. Uh, here's another. Equally worrying is the ecological question. Man consumes the resources of the earth in an excessive and disordered way. He's embarked upon a senseless destruction of the natural environment. This is St. John Paul II in Centesimus Sanus. Last, how can we genuinely teach the importance of concern for other vulnerable beings, however troublesome or inconvenient they may be, if we fail to protect a human embryo, even when its presence is uncomfortable and creates difficulties? This is Pope Francis. Much of what Francis says can seem new, even shocking, because he has a very colorful style, but he's firmly situated in a long tradition of Catholic social teaching and The differences that the media like to draw between him and his predecessors, especially the immediate ones, um, are are maybe often storylines that we bring to the material rather than genuine changes in church teaching, as Francis himself said, apropos of his beliefs about and teachings about marriage and contraception and abortion, I'm a son of the church. Let me see, I want to talk a little bit about what he has to say about poverty and what he might mean by it, a little bit about the environment, and then a little bit about the authoritativeness of church teachings. So let me begin with the poor. Care for the poor has been a major theme of the pope's teaching. When he chose the name Francis, it was in part, he said, because St. Francis is the man of poverty. The emphasis isn't surprising. He's the first pope from Latin America where the rates of extreme poverty are much higher than those that we see in the United States. The idea, his idea, that we who have more have a responsibility to people who have less, what's sometimes called the preferential option for the poor, isn't an original idea with him. Francis, the Pope, quotes St. John Chrysostom. St. John Chrysostom lived in the 4th century from 350 to early in the 400s. um, Chrysostom's homily on Lazarus and the rich man, here is what St. John Chrysostom said, Not to share one's wealth with the poor is to steal from them and to take away their livelihood. It's not our own goods we hold, but theirs. That we have a duty to share our wealth in turn derives from a couple of other very Catholic ideas. The first is the notion that each of us has an inherent dignity because we're children of God, not just Catholics. The book of Genesis says that every man and woman is created in God's image and likeness out of love. And the other is the notion that we are made to live in community, and God gives us creation not to serve just our own individual goods, but the common good, and this ought to guide the way we use property. Here's Leo Thirteenth, the pope in the 19th century who created my university, quoting St. Thomas Aquinas. Man should not consider his material possessions as his own, but as common to all, so as to share them without hesitation when others are in need. The thing is, the mistake we all make in hearing stuff like this is thinking that the Pope is making a political argument. Uh, the idea that we ought to share our wealth isn't a plank from the Socialist Party platform. It's a spiritual council. If you want to inherit eternal life, Jesus told the rich young man, go and sell what you have and give to the poor. This is the message the Pope delivered when he made a trip to Korea in 2014. He said to the young people there, that they needed to combat the allure of a materialism that stifles authentic spiritual and cultural values and the spirit of unbridled competition, which generates selfishness and strife. Still, in um, writings like Evangelii Gaudium and Laudato Si, and in his speeches and in his homily, Um, Pope Francis has some pretty harsh words for free market capitalism. He calls the economy an economy of exclusion and inequality, an economy that kills. He criticizes trickle-down theories of economics. And the economic changes he calls for seem more revolutionary than reformatory. These are strong words for a system that seems both necessary and beneficial. Uh, You've just heard some interesting data about the effect (laughs) that free market capitalism has had. Um, I recently read in um, Arthur Brooks's new book, The Conservative Heart, that the expansion of free market capitalism is responsible for a great reduction in world poverty. The number of people he says living in starvation level of poverty, which he defines as a buck a day, um, declined by 80% between 1970 and 2010. And he says the institutions that deserve credit for this decline are globalization and free trade and property rights and the rule of law and entrepreneurship. So, what's up with the. Compared to Brooks, the Pope seems like a crypto socialist with a little, um, you know, little confidence in free market capitalism and little understanding of the benefit of growing the economy. So, who's right? Well, it isn't quite that simple. Um, In the first place, the Pope believes that work is important even wholly. He says in Evangelii Gaudium that it is a noble vocation. And for this reason, he says we don't want a comprehensive welfare state. Welfare should be a provisional solution, not a permanent one. Our goal ought to be to provide a dignified life for everybody through work. And businesses and markets are an essential part of this task. In the second place, uh, it's uh, true that Francis understands the importance of growing the economy to provide jobs. He recently spoke to the leaders in Paraguay and said the following every culture needs economic growth and the creation of wealth. What he asks of business people is that they not only increase the goods of this world, but also make them more accessible to everybody. So why the seeming condemnation of the market? The central point of his teaching, I think, is that the market is a tool that's subordinate to the good of human beings. It mustn't be the measure of human goods or the end to which we bend other things. And when that happens, the problem is that even human beings themselves are considered consumer goods to be used and then discarded. This summer, Uh, He gave a speech at the World Meeting of Popular Movements in Bolivia and uh, spoke words very much like this. He he described the global economy as a system that imposes the mentality of profit at any price. When he was in Paraguay, he asked politicians not to yield to an economic model which is idolatrous, which needs to sacrifice human lives on the altar of money and profit. It would be tempting to dismiss the Pope's words as inflammatory rhetoric if they weren't literally true. Today, as the Pope has highlighted, on many occasions we throw away children, more than 40 million a year through abortion, the great majority from the developing world. This summer, the Center for Medical Progress released a series of videos about Planned Parenthood selling the limbs and organs of aborted children as commodities to medical researchers, limbs that God knit together in the womb as Psalm 139 says, have become line items on an invoice. A human being made and known by God is deemed more valuable dead than alive. Francis also points out that we throw away the elderly in nursing homes and the poor in slums and young people who are struggling to find work. The unemployment rate for young people in Italy is north of 40%. And the Pope's goal in speaking so often about the poor is to bring them to our attention. He decries the fact that poverty has become so commonplace it's acceptable. In Evangelii Gaudium, he he asks, how can it be that it's not a news item when an elderly homeless person dies of exposure, but it is news when the stock market loses two points? This is a case of exclusion. Can we continue to stand by when food is thrown away while people are starving? This is a case of inequality. Almost without being aware of it, he says, we end up being incapable of feeling compassion at the outcry of the poor. So um, I said I wanted to talk about the poor, a little bit about the environment, and then a little bit about the authoritativeness of these teachings. So let me say a word or two about the environment. And maybe the most surprising thing about this encyclical Laudato Si, which has gotten so much attention, is how little space Francis actually devotes to the thing that we usually talk about when we focus on the environment. In the first chapter, he spends a lot of time talking about pollution and global warming and a loss of biodiversity, the standard fare of ecological talks. But he's just as worried about a deterioration in what he calls human ecology. And he finds symptoms of that in almost every aspect of human life. He talks about the loss of green spaces in the cities, about an increase in violence, about social exclusion, about the rise of drug trafficking. He even has bad words to say about the internet. He says that there's a deterioration of interpersonal communication when we talk to one another on phones and uh, devices that shield us from direct contact with the pain, the fears, and the joys of others. These are all symptoms, he says, of the same disease. Francis condemns what he calls a technocratic paradigm in modern society, a tendency to treat all of creation as open to manipulation for us to possess and master and transform. But it's not, he says. Nature is God's art. It's impressed on things, and living beings not just people, have a value of their own, which we should respect. We have, we might say rightly, a moral relationship with the earth itself. In all of this, he sounds sometimes like uh, Peter or the Sierra Club, but he goes on to say that man too is God's gift to man. We're part of creation. Our own relations with one another, he says, are an ecological issue. And he, uh, unlike uh, the usual proponents of Um, of the environmental movement condemns uh, the idea that we should have a reduction in the birth rate, especially in the developing world, as a solution to climate change. And he stresses the inconsistency of those who would protect endangered species while promoting abortion. He even says that our own bodies are God's gift and we must accept our own femininity and masculinity as part of his ecological program. This encyclical got a lot of criticism Uh, more from the right than from the left before its publication. Some people pointed out, shades of Galileo, that the church has no expertise in science and shouldn't attempt to settle scientific matters. And he acknowledges this. He says on many concrete questions, the church has no reason to offer a definitive opinion. But he is concerned that the lack of clarity should become an excuse for our doing nothing. We have to choose to treat the environment one way or another. And we have to make those decisions with the best information available. And when we do act, our actions should be guided by the same principles that he invokes uh, to govern the economy. He says that environmental action can't come at the expense of the poor or of future generations. His most significant point, I think, is that environmental debate is not a scientific prerogative. Scientists should measure temperatures and shorelines and predict trends and so on, but when we act on this information, we need a moral perspective, and that's what he says the church ought to offer. So let me close with a word, or a few words, too, about the authority of these statements that he's making. The first of the two words I want to offer is that we should all, especially Catholics, pay respectful attention to what he's saying. Some conservative Catholics responding to the Pope's comments on the economy and the environment sound like, Nancy Pelosi responding to church teaching about abortion and marriage. They say that the Pope ought to leave science to scientists and economics to business people and stick to theology. But this has not been the church's understanding of her responsibility. Faith is not a spiritual hobby. It affects every aspect of life, and there's a long tradition of papal catechesis on economics, I've quoted uh, St. John Chrysostom and St. Ambrose, or I might quote again, Pope Leo XIII, founder of the Catholic University of America, who wrote in Rerum Novarum about the institution of private property and the right of laborers to unionize and bargain collectively. So that's the first point. He does have something to say and it's worth listening to. Second, I do want to add just a note of care or caution, maybe because I'm a lawyer, but I'm attentive to these kinds of things. But um, uh, Catholics are expected to teach, to, to treat church teaching as authoritative, but authority, this authority, is a complex thing. Not every statement that a pope makes, for example, is to be treated as infallible. The doctrine of papal infallibility is something, something like the clear statement rule that courts use in interpreting statutes. The, the, the actual rule is that a pope speaks infallibly only when he, quote, he proclaims by a definitive act some doctrine of faith or morals. The phrase definitive act here means that he must make perfectly clear his intention to speak infallibly, and otherwise it's not that kind of statement. Now, not to say that we can cast aside the rest of them. Below the level of infallible statements, there are many documents with different weights of authority. For example, there was a big uh, rash of news stories last week about a moto proprio announcing changes in the annulment process for failed marriages. Uh, In May, the Pope published Laudato Si as an encyclical, the one on the environment. This carries more weight than... What's called an apostolic exhortation, like Evangelii Gaudium, and less authoritative still are the homilies that pope, the pope gives on scripture readings at mass. And but beneath that, I mean, be far beneath that, are the chats that he has on airplanes with reporters. <laughs> <laughs> Who are here? And Francis makes clear in Evangelii Gaudium that his recommendations are not intended to have infallible force. Here's what he says. Neither the Pope nor the church has a monopoly on the interpretation of social realities or the proposal of solutions to contemporary problems. It is difficult for us to put forward a solution which has universal validity. This is not our ambition, nor is it our mission. It is up to Christian communities to analyze with objectivity the situation which is Proper to their own country, we Americans are the most um, intellectually imperialistic of cultures, and we always imagine that the Pope is speaking to us. Forget it, we are just a small fraction of the of the church 's population around the world, so there are other countries that need to be listened even more attentively than we do to the pope 's teaching. Let me add one last thing about authoritativeness this is uh, uh, the authoritativeness of papal teachings also varies with the subject matter, and this too is an idea that's a familiar one to lawyers. The the United States Supreme Court has ultimate authority to interpret the federal constitution, but as every first-year law student knows, uh, Erie Railroad holds that the court has no such authority in matters of state law. So it is with the church, whose jurisdiction is limited to matters of faith and morals. Now, not to say that the environment, the economy don't have implications for those, but the Pope's teaching Pope Urban VIII's teaching on astronomy rightly deserve less respect than Galileo's. And within the domain of faith and morals, there is a spectrum of issues. Again, I don't mean to say that we should cast this aside, but there are, in the first place, things revealed in the, in the gospel message, as the canon lawyers say, things that are de fide, like that Jesus is God. And there are these are the primary... Objects of the Church's magisterium. There are things which have been taught, as the canon lawyers say, semper et ubique, that is to say, always and everywhere, like the evil of certain sins, and you know what they are. Um, then there's a range of other things to which the church speaks with um, diminishing degrees of authority recognition diction of a church council as ecumenical the canonization of saints and so on so I don't mean to say that we need to discount all of this only that this is a really complex matter in the ways that many moral and legal questions are and don't uh, don't put too much stock in what you hear the Pope said on an airplane
0: so thanks very much Thank you very much. Our next speaker is M- Michael Sean Winters, uh, who writes an award-winning blog, Distinctly Catholic, and, um, at the National Catholic Reporter, uh, a daily commentary in politics, religion, and culture. He's also the U.S. correspondent for The Tablet, uh, the London-based International Catholic Weekly. He worked as a speechwriter on General Wesley Clark's uh, presidential campaign and is the author of Left at the Altar how Democrats lost the Catholics, and how Catholics can save the Democrats. He is a visiting fellow at the Catholic University's Institute for Policy Research and uh, Catholic Studies. Please help me welcome Mr.
2: Winters. I also have never been uh, to Cato before and uh, don't often get to start a talk with Latin But I thought uh, I would do so with perhaps his most famous line, Cetram Senseo Carthaginem Esse Delendum, which we usually shorten as Carthage, Carthago Delenda Est, Carthage must be destroyed. If we replace the word Carthage with the phrase free market ideology, we can imagine Pope Francis using this most famous of Cato's lines. Actually, popes don't usually use such rough language as the verb to destroy. Perhaps we could say, Pope Francis uh, could say that free market ideology needs to be repealed and replaced. I've heard that phrase uh, in the last few years. But in any event, we don't have to speculate about what he has said. We can look at what he has said, and and, uh, I'll uh, borrow on some of the same quotes that President Garvey did. This economy kills. Some people continue to defend trickle-down theories which assume that economic growth encouraged by a free market will inevitably succeed in bringing about greater justice and inclusiveness in the world. This opinion, which has never been confirmed by the facts, expresses a crude and naive trust in the goodness of those wielding economic power and in the sacralized workings of the prevailing economic system. He has repeatedly condemned the idolatry of the market. And he has said uh, in in the speech to which President Garvey uh, referred to in Bolivia, when capital becomes an idol, You get pain, death, and destruction, and the stench of what Basil of Caesarea called the dung of the devil. These are strong words, perhaps as strong as cathargo delenda est. I would like to make the case uh, that the pope's critique of free market ideology is traditional, systemic, ethical, and finally anthropological. It is supremely traditional. Pope Benedict XVI said the conviction that the economy must be autonomous, that it must be shielded from influences of a moral character, has led man to abuse the economic process in a thoroughly destructive way. Pope John Paul II said the state of inequality between individuals and between nations not only still exists, it is increasing. It is obvious that a fundamental defect, or rather a series of defects, indeed a defective machinery, is at the root of contemporary economics and materialistic civilization, which does not allow the human family to break free from such radically unjust situations. John Paul II also said, in speaking of the poor and disadvantaged, it is a question not only of alleviating the most serious and urgent needs through individual actions here and there, but of uncovering the roots of evil and proposing initiatives to make social, political, and economic structures more just and fraternal. Pope Paul VI condemned erroneous autonomy, a phrase that uh, I see Professor Steve Schneck here, who's the director of Catholic University's Institute for Policy Research. Uh, we ran a, a symposium last year uh, called Erroneous Autonomy, the Catholic Case Against Libertarianism. Uh, and we had a 2nd follow-up conference uh, uh, in June uh, on faith and solidarity, again, using erroneous autonomy as a way of really highlighting the differences between libertarian thought and Catholic uh, social thought. One of my favorite papal quotes is from Pius XI in Quadragesimo Anno, who wrote, Just as the unity of human society cannot be founded on an opposition of classes, so also the right ordering of economic life cannot be left to free competition of forces. For from this source, as from a poisoned spring, have originated and spread all the errors of individualist economic thinking." we could go back even further to the Gospel, in which the Blessed Virgin Mary says, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. So what is the difference with Pope Francis? I would submit that it is he is quite blunt, and you can't spin him. John Paul II and Benedict XVI were often interpreted by Americans' conservative voices to an American audience, and I think they brought a distorting lens uh, to, to what both uh, those two great popes had to say. With Pope Francis, there's no need to interpret it. Uh, it's kind of funny. One of the early criticisms of, of, of Pope Francis was, oh, he's very confusing. Well, there's nothing confusing about it. I mean, you can go talk to uh, uh, you know, uh, some, some immigrant workers who, who work uh, you know, picking the tomatoes that we'll have with our salad at lunch. They're not confused by Pope Francis. Uh, the people leveling that charge just don't like what he has to say. The critique is systemic. The change that Pope Francis calls for is not merely that individual capitalists become more virtuous. I mean, he's all in favor of virtue and opposed to vice. But it's deeper than that. If if that were the case, if it was only a matter of of people behaving more virtuously, only any system would do. I'm reminded of Madison saying if men were angels, there would be no need of government. The pope's critique of the free market system has two tracks, one based on facts on the ground, and the other at the level of, of, of theory. And in both, he's not only condemning excesses, he's condemning the system itself. As a, th- as a theory, free market ideology opposes almost all government and intervention in the market. But Pope Francis and Catholic social teaching do not share this horror of government. Government is an expression of the common good. Government is called upon to enact justice. John Paul II in Centesimus Annus, number 28, said a just society, quote, is not directed against the market, but demands the market be appropriately controlled. You could compare this with von Mises, who said liberty is always freedom from the government. As Benedict XVI pointed out, free market theory allows no room for gratuitousness. I think Pope Francis would add mercy. We could compare this with the Mosaic Law, which required tithes for the poor and forgiveness of debts on a regular basis with jubilees. The biggest problem, I think, though, is self-interest versus the universal destination of goods. Self-interest is, of course, a sin. And it can't be wiggled into a virtue by reference to its socially creative consequences. As David Schindler has pointed out, Christians mean something very different by creativity from what capitalists mean. I'll say Pope Francis. Uh, uh, when he deals with some of these issues in Laudato Si is pulling on Guardini, Schindler pulls on Balthasar, but the, the overlap, I think, is obvious. A primary foundational belief of Catholic social teaching is the universal destination of goods, which means that all the goods of the world are to be distributed so that everyone has enough to live and to participate in society. This claim is prior to property rights. Classic Thomistic theory holds that private property rights can be recognized, but only as a consequence of the fall, the original sin. Another point of divergence, obviously, that comes up all the time is that free market ideologues always seem to have it in for organized labor. And going back to Rerum Navarum, uh, the church has explicitly endorsed the right of workers to, to uh, unionize, and it has never drawn a distinction between public and private sector uh, workers and their right to organize. Turning to the lived reality, I think this is even more important for Pope Francis. He has said on several occasions, reality is more important than ideas. It is often asserted with some basis in fact, as as, uh, Marion pointed out at the beginning, that capitalism and other accoutrements of modernity have lifted millions out of poverty. But if at the same time it excludes others, it is an unjust system and unworthy of the human person, inadequate as an economic system. We could look at the Trans-Pacific uh, Trade Deal, which seems to be stalled, but if it goes through, one of the things that we can anticipate is that certain jobs and factories in the nations uh, currently subject to the CAFTA Accords in Central America will go to uh, Vietnam and Malaysia. right? There, these trade accords, uh, they invite a race to the bottom with, with wages. We could look at the issue of debt crises. Uh, why is austerity, which uh, disproportionately harms the poor, why is that always the first option? I was pleased to see... Uh, last month that the Puerto Rican bishops and other religious leaders have called for a different approach to the, the crisis that, that Puerto Rico is facing, where, you know, it's an odd situation in Puerto Rico. They kind of fall between the, uh, the stool of they, they're not a sovereign nation, so they can't work with the IMF. They're not a city or a state, so they can't go into ba- bankruptcy protection. And they've asked for the Fed to help them restructure the debt and to start not with mandating austerity, but to start by giving a haircut to the hedge funds. Uh, I'm for that. That's a good idea. We can look at the 2008 economic meltdown here and around the world. Even Alan Greenspan, who I'm sure is uh, is, as devoted to free market ideas as anyone in public life in the last 50 years, admitted that the crisis forced him to rethink his neoliberal assumptions. At the micro level, we can point to, um, again, this attack on unions. We saw Scott Walker roll out an attack on this. I will stand with Leo XIII, who, uh, who defended unions. We can consider the circumstance of a shop owner who wishes to provide a living wage. Uh, The phrase living wage entered the American lexicon in, uh, I believe it was 1906, John A. Ryan's doctoral dissertation at Catholic University, again based on Leo's writings in Rerum Novarum. Catholic belief is that every person is entitled to a living wage. Um, But if this shop owner, who's a good Catholic and wants to live by his faith, extends a living wage and his competition across the street doesn't, Uh, What in the market rewards the good guy? As Brad Gregory observes in his magisterial book, The Unintended Reformation, commenting on the transformation from a mercantilist to a capitalist system, quote, in effect, outside the price protection afforded by guilds, capitalist practices compelled mercantile competitors to act as if they were driven by acquisitive desires, even when they were not, close quote. Gregory describes the shift from the good society to the goods society, which raises an additional problem with capitalism. It is married to consumerism. I suppose in some theoretical construct, that was not necessary, but that is how it has played out. Uh, I think we we can say that we capitalists in the West have succeeded succeeded where the communist failed, uh, making a culture that is thoroughly materialistic. Instead of one big God, the party, we have many idols in our department stores. Uh, I think of the war on Christmas every year when uh, uh, Fox News gets all worked up because this department store, that chain, has dropped Merry Christmas in favor of Happy Holidays. If you walk through a department store between Thanksgiving and Christmas and you think the choice of Happy Holidays is the problem with what uh, modern consumer capitalism has done to Christmas, I would suggest you have missed the point. They have taken a holiday about God becoming poor in human flesh and turned it into a, a chance to teach young children how to be greedy is exactly what Christmas has become in this country I turn now to the ethical considerations and difficulties there's some debate about uh, in in free market circles about whether or not the free market uh, ideology even contains a moral sense Milton Friedman said economic freedom is an end in itself freedom has nothing to say about what an individual does with his freedom more on uh, the issue of freedom in a bit Hayek compared the free market to a game in which, quote, there is no sense in calling the result just or unjust, close quote. In this view, the market is a mere tool that can be used well or used badly with efficiency as the only relevant criterion. I think this is wrong. I think tools always imply a teleology and results can be efficient and unjust at the same time. Pope Francis explicitly warned about using efficiency and technology as the only criteria for evaluating economic and other social activity in Laudato Si, his encyclical on the environment. I would argue, however, there is a very obvious ethics at the heart of market ideology by posing a few questions. What values does the market celebrate? Who are its heroes? And comparing these with the Catholic view, the market celebrates the self-made man not the man who evidences solidarity. It celebrates thrift and frugality, not gratuitousness or generosity or simplicity, which has a different flavor from frugality. The market demands self-assertion, not self-surrender. The market celebrates success, and of course, Pope Francis, like all Catholics, worships a crucified God. The market runs on competition, not cooperation. Need I go on? American capitalism was celebrated in a show called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Pope Francis has ministered in the name of Christ to the poor and the forgotten. The Christian ethical vision has been clouded in U.S. culture. We've tended to confuse fortune with blessing. Pope Francis reminds us that the good news of the gospel is brought to the poor. Or, if I may quote that great ethical wit, Dorothy Parker, if you want to know what God thinks of money, just look at the people he gave it to. Finally, we'll turn to the anthropological difference. And when I say anthropology, obviously, I'm not talking about excavating for tools uh, from 500 years ago. The church means something very rich and specific when it refers to the human person, and that is a social meaning, not an autonomous understanding. Uh, And I think these uh, examples will highlight this difference. Critics of government entitlement programs complain that they create a culture of dependency in a pedestrian sense, this criticism is obviously valid. Programs should, not cre- should create on-ramps to participate fully in society, not create disincentives to work or to form a family. But at a deeper level, a culture of entitlement and dependency is precisely what free market ideology cannot deliver, but what the Christian vision demands. People really are entitled to a living wage. They are entitled to a roof over their heads to a secure retirement. They are retitle, entitled to access to health care. And for Christians, the human person is radically dependent, first on God, every time we say grace, from thy bounty, and secondly, on one another. The bond of dependence is called solidarity or neighborliness. I'm reminded that Hayek said we, sh- we would gain, quote, from not treating one another as neighbors, close quote. Jesus said we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. The Christian vision requires alternism, a focus on the holy other, God, and on the face of the other, our fellow men and women. Indeed, for the Christian, the disposition to generosity in human relations always takes priority. David Schindler said selfishness becomes mutual is not yet mutual generosity. Another point of difference is at the anthropological level is this word freedom, which is a deeply ambiguous word made to carry far too much weight in a variety of contemporary political uh, discussions. Uh, Negative freedom that we have at the basis of our constitutional system and that uh, the the Friedman and Hayek quotes referred to earlier, um, this is not the freedom of the children of God. Uh, the, the Catholic Church cannot accept a negative freedom from conception as of freedom as adequate. You saw this in the debate over uh, the decree on religious liberty, Dignitas Humanae at the Vatican Council. Everyone focuses on the big debate between the advocates of religious freedom versus its, its opponents. But the more interesting debate was among uh, the, the Murrayites, who did embrace a kind of American constitutional a very juridical concept of freedom, and Congar and the French intellectuals who saw its problems. When asked about this, because that document, like many conciliar documents, was a uh, a consensus document, uh, a year later, John Courtney Murray said, this was an issue that we have to skate around. Well, as we've seen in the issues uh, surrounding the uh, HHS contraception mandate, and I would argue here on these issues of of economic liberty, we can no longer skate around uh, those issues. The ice has gotten far too thin. The Catholic faith teaches that we humans are called to communion, to solidarity with God and with one one another. Everything the church teaches about human relations, including economics, flows from our belief that the human person is created in the image and likeness of God. Our most foundational doctrinal belief about God is the Trinity, that God is himself a communion of persons. And it is in this image that we are created. To denounce or demean solidarity then, to celebrate an autonomous self, and to build an economic theory around that, is to challenge a Christian's most basic belief about who God is. Uh, In this great free country of ours, we are all free to stand with Hayek and Mises. Uh, I'm much happier to be standing with Pope Francis.
0: Thank you very much. Our last speaker is J.W. Richards, who is an assistant research professor in the School of Business and Economics at the Catholic University of America. He is an executive editor of the stream and a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute. Richards is author of many books, including the New York Times best selling books Infiltrated in 2013 and Indivisible in 2012. He is also the author of Money, Greed, and God, which won the uh, 2010 Templeton Enterprise Award. His articles and essays have been published in Harvard Business Review, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Forbes, and many other prestigious uh, venues. With that, please help me welcome J.W. Richards.
3: Well, it's wonderful to be with you, and it's, it's fun to be in the F.A. Hayek Auditorium for, the, for these subjects since I went last, I realized that many of the things I was going to say are things that President Garvey has said or that Michael has already said. So I'm going to change my plans here a little bit. I do want to address this question about how we understand Pope Francis, because most, unless you're a, a full time Pope follower, you're, say, a, you know, you write for a Catholic publication or you teach at a public university, virtually everything you know or think you know about any Pope, especially this one, is coming to you second or third hand from the media. And so very often what he actually says is something different from what he uh, in fact says. Michael quoted uh, his statement about the dung of the devil and you quoted the actual statement that uh, that Pope Francis said. But if you Google that, uh, what you'll see is that Pope Francis called capitalism the dung of the devil. Though of course in the in the speech he doesn't use the word capitalism. That's what's odd about many of the things that Pope Francis says. He, he very, very rarely actually uses the word capitalism. I think that that perhaps is deliberate. My favorite example, though, of sort of media distortion has nothing to do with these topics. Uh, uh, Last year, Pope Francis spoke to the Pontifical Academies of Science and was talking about uh, how the Catholic and Catholic theology understands God. It was reported in the English-speaking press that the pope had said to these scientists that God is not a divine being. Right, I just let that sink in. So the Pope said that God is not a divine being. right? So when I saw this, I, 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 you know, if I could make money just finding media distortions, I would try to monetize it. But I thought, this can't possibly be right. The Pope would say this. So I went to the, the Vatican uh, news site. Thought I'll look at the English translation there. It was there that's where the media had gotten it so you can't necessarily trust the vatican news site on these things at least in the short term so i went to the original speech which had been was in an italian and what he had said is god is not a demiurgos God is not a demiurge. Now, there's a technical philosophical term that essentially says God is not just the sort of top member of the universe. He's a transcendent creator over everything that is. Well, it's just sort of straightforward Christian and Catholic theology that uh, once translated, uh, like a a game of telephone internationally, had the pope saying God is not a divine being. So whenever you're you're tempted to think, "Okay, I know for sure what the pope is saying, uh, just remember that. That's how bad it can actually get. But what we're going to talk about here for, for a few minutes today, and much, in fact, of what I wanted to say has already been said, is this idea of capitalism through the eyes of Pope Francis. And so that, that's really what I want to focus on. I mentioned that uh, Pope Francis very rarely actually uses the word capitalism. In fact, until yesterday, I hadn't been able to find an example of him using the term at all. It turns out if if the story is to be trusted uh, a year ago, or rather two years ago in 2013, He gave a talk to a a soup kitchen in Rome in which he referred to something called savage capitalism. So I thought, okay, oh, perfect, here we go. But when you look to see what he meant, the way he defined this term savage capitalism was the logic of profit at any cost. All right, so that's a kind of very specific idea. We could debate: is that a fair interpretation of capitalism as it's normally defended or not? But it's clear to see that that's clearly what he had in mind. As President Garvey said, many of the things that the Pope writes, including in this most recent encyclical, La Si', in his previous apostolic letter, he doesn't say a lot about these particular things. In fact, in uh, his apostolic letter, Evangelii Gaudium, if I'm correct, it was only about eight pages in which he discusses economic topics at all. But he does say this from pages 53 to, to 60. He says that we must say no to, and this is direct quotes, to an economy of exclusion. We must say no to the new idolatry of money. We must say no to a financial system that rules rather than serves. And we must say no to the inequality which spawns violence. Okay, so if you're a defender of the free market, ask yourself a question. Do you disagree with that? Anything that he said here? Uh, would you say no to an economy of exclusion or to an idolatry of money or to an inequality that spawns violence? It's a specific kind of inequality. Um, he does, however, say in Evangelii Gaudium, uh, he specifically condemns what he calls the absolute autonomy of markets. And this is a term that he's used several times. And as Michael said, that actually Pope Francis and Pope Benedict have also used a term very much like that. The same document, I'll just, I, I want to reiterate these things, even though you've already heard him once this afternoon. He says uh, he refers to those who continue to defend trickle-down theories, which assume that economic growth, Encouraged by a free market will inevitably succeed in bringing about greater justice and inclusiveness in the world. Such a view, he writes, which has never been confirmed by the facts, expresses a crude and naive trust in the goodness of those wielding economic power and in the sacralized workings of the prevailing economic system. More generally, he says this, we can no longer trust in the unseen forces and in the invisible hand of the market. So I think it would, be, it would be fair to say, I'd love to try to sort of spin this, and some people try to do this, uh, especially those of us who, def- who think of the live alternatives that economic freedom uh, is the best thing to go. would like to sort of spin this away, but I do think at least Pope Francis has an impression. Uh-oh, let me fix this here. It looks like it sort of clicked off on me. I can keep going. Yeah, here we go. I got it. Michael was telling me beforehand that this is the reason he doesn't use PowerPoint. So there you go. You've got another reason. Stick with the yellow pad. So, but I do think it's fair to say that his view of, of capitalism, at least as he understands it, is generally not positive. As, as President Garvey says in Dato C, si, he does have positive things to say about business and its role in creating wealth and in creating jobs. But I, I think that's uh, the best that we could say. Um, it, taking together so his apostolic letter and his most recent encyclical and then uh, many of his extemporaneous and written speeches, I think uh, that what, w- the better thing to do is to just focus on what Pope Francis primarily is saying, what he's intending to say and what he does in fact say, because he says many things over and over. And so I think we can take these as sort of recurring themes in his own thought on this subject. He speaks frequently about st- what he calls speculation. In fact, he used it last week. Uh, speaking in Italy, I believe, to a cooperative bank association. It's actually in Rome. He talks about economic ideologies that deny human dignity, uh, that embrace selfishness and greed. He talks, again, a lot about the idolatry of money and ideologies uh, that idolatrize money. A lot about greed, as we said, comes up again and again. Michael said a lot about inequality. This doesn't distinguish him from virtually any other pope in the 20th or now the 21st century. He does invoke, as you heard a minute ago, the idea of the invisible hand. He said, to paraphrase, that we can no longer trust in the the sort of guidance of this invisible hand, which is, of course, the term that Adam Smith came up with. Interestingly, Smith, so far as I can tell, only ever used the term twice, but that's what most people remember that he said. And behind all this, I think this is sort of a crucial point. Whenever Pope Francis is talking about these things, invariably, he has one subject in mind. It's poverty. Poverty is precisely the thing that motivates everything that he says about these. And if, you're, if you tend to be very skeptical of the things Pope Francis says about the economy, at least understand this, that the things he says, he says not simply because of some kind of ideological predilection, but because he is profoundly concerned about the poor, and as President Garvey says, the reason he took the name Francis is because of his concern about the poor. Nevertheless, I, th- I think it's fair to say as someone, my, my Twitter handle incidentally is Free Market J. so just so you sort of know where I'm coming from on these questions, that some of the things he says feel sometimes like a caricature, like, well, that's not anything I would ever defend, and it's certainly not anything that any of the people that I admire would ever defend. And so the question is, where does he specifically get the ideas that he has about what Uh, free market capitalism or entrepreneurial capitalism actually are. And I think there's actually uh, a a fairly clear reason for that. And it it requires us to make a useful distinction. Many of the things he says, in fact, many of the things he says about the global financial system, about the financial crisis. uh, As Marion said, I wrote a book in 2013 on the financial crisis. This was an abiding interest of mine. And frankly, many of the things he says about the financial system ring true when talking about that. It's just that when I read him on that, they ring true to me, not as a critique of free market capitalism, but as a critique of something we might call cronyism or corporatism. And insofar as you sort of understand what he talks about and what he's saying, in that light, that if you say, okay, what he is uh, connoting, right, or what he's denoting, what he's referring to, is not the the philosophical views of Adam Smith or even F.A. Hayek, but the corporatism and the cronyism that often stands in for those things, in in some degree in the United States, but certainly in many countries in South America. And this, I think, is really, really important, because Pope Francis, as an Argentine, has experienced for his entire life a particularly brutal form of what I would call a sort of hard corporatism, if you want to call it that. Many of you may not know much about Argentina. I've not been there, but I have many friends who have and have talked to them a lot about the country. And I think it's a sort of crucial thing to realize about Pope Francis' experience and the things that he says when he's speaking about things like the the socioeconomic system in terms like this that he uses fairly vaguely. In 1900, Argentina was one of the world's 10 wealthiest nations in terms of GDP per capita. One of the 10 wealthiest. Because of this, there was massive immigration from Northern Europe in the early 20th century into Argentina. Now, you don't think of it this way, of course, anymore, and it's largely the result of Juan Perón and his wife who came into power in, a, in, in an ideology that's very difficult to describe in that sort of left-right American spectrum. But you can sort of think of it as a populist leftism, uh, which uh, is in many ways is a kind of an aristro- aristoc- aristocratic contempt for the commerce class and for the bourgeoisie. Uh, and a, a highly populist rhetoric, which appeals to the common people but nevertheless implements political programs that are essentially a form of cronyism uh, in which large economic actors work in collusion with the state to, to enrich themselves but not to enrich their common people. If you think about what Pope Francis is saying in that light and think about his experience of cronyism in Argentina, much of what he says Starts to make sense. Now, I, I don't want to say that he's clearly making these distinctions. He does not, anywhere so far as I know, distinguish between the type of cronyism uh, that's still rife in Argentina and the type of, say, free market capitalism that you'd get in some place like Hong Kong or the type of general uh, free economy that you'd have in a place like South Korea. He doesn't make these distinctions, and I would very much like to see him make those. Nevertheless, I think it's absolutely important uh, in reading what he says to understand his experience. Now, what about Argentina? Well, Argentina is now Uh, Alas, an economic basket case in the most recent index of economic freedom comes in 169th out of 178 countries on the planet in terms of economic freedom. So it's between the Democratic Republic of Congo uh, and the Republic of Congo, right? So not doing very well. In fact, if you're in South America and the Caribbean, the only countries that do, do worse are Venezuela and Cuba. So whatever you want to say about Argentina, this is not a bastion of free market capitalism. Uh, It's a a very powerful, overbearing state, several large, presumably private economic actors in which massive amounts of inequality, not the kind of benign inequality uh, that defines, say, everyone in this room and Bill Gates, uh, right? But a malignant form of inequality that's the the form of inequality of plutocrats in cahoots with the state uh, and peasantry living in shanty towns. Now, if that is your picture, of capitalism, of the global economy, then what Pope Francis says absolutely makes sense. So here's the question. So what to do? What, imagine, for instance, that you're a Catholic philosopher or you're an economist and you've studied these things. You've sort of looked at the empirical details. You've looked at different political economies. You have no delusions that any economic system is going to bring about heaven on earth. You have no, no sense that there's a utopia. Nevertheless, you think on empirical grounds, the economic systems and economic freedom as it tends to be defended in terms of rule of law, private property rights, low levels of corruption, a minimally virtuous populace, and wide-ranging economic freedom is the best of the live economic alternatives for lifting large numbers of people out of uh, uh, absolute poverty. That is, if you're aware, for instance, of the many things that you can see at humanprogress.org, if you follow it on Twitter almost every single day, these are sort of empirical facts. So we're not in a position simply of having to analyze different competing economic ideologies. I think ultimately we're in a position of asking a sort of empirical question. What mix of juridical structures and institutions and economic structures is most conducive to human flourishing and is most conducive to lifting large numbers of people out of poverty? What if you're a faithful Catholic and an Orthodox Catholic and you're convinced that it's free economic systems that do this? What are you to do? This is the sort of dilemma. And I think to understand what uh, one needs to do, you have to actually understand a few things about the way in which authority works in the Catholic Church and the authority of the magisterium. President Garvey has actually almost entirely covered what I was going to say here, Uh, but you have to make distinctions. So uh, everyone, at least everyone that's not Catholic so far as I can tell, all of my evangelical friends, if I ask them, they haven't studied Christian theology, and I ask them, what does papal infallibility entails? tend to think, well, it just means that everything the Pope says is infallible. Of course, that's, that's not true, and you can discover this in about five minutes with a really good Google search, but that tends to be people's impressions of how these things work. Nevertheless, there is a, a detailed uh, sort of historical body of texts that have come to be called Catholic social teaching that uh, by convention start with Pope Leo XIII's encyclical Rerum Novarum and continue to the present, in which the Popes are applying particular themes both from Catholic theology but also from natural law to the sort of current abiding questions of economics and politics. And I would sort of refer to the, the central abiding and I would say infallible core of these things as the principles that you see articulated and presupposed in these documents of Catholic social teaching. At the same time, I think it's a mistake to think that Catholic social teaching equals some detailed Catholic Uh, political policy. It's not as if it articulates in detail the precise details, for instance, of how a tax system should be put together or how immigration policy should be put together in a way that's both just and prudent. It it provides a set of principles that I would argue actually provide a wonderful lens uh, and a clarifying lens for thinking through these issues. But it doesn't sort of provide, okay, here's the Catholic political And so that's why Catholics of good faith uh, can nevertheless differ and disagree on particular political topics, while nevertheless adhering to these principles of Catholic social teaching. Here's how Pope uh, John Paul II put it, and he's not saying anything, I don't think, that's, uh, that's idiosyncratic in this regard. So the church's social doctrine is not a third way between liberal capitalism and Marxist collectivism, not even a possible alternative to other solutions less radically opposed to one another. Rather, it constitutes a category of its own. In some ways, that doesn't mean that it's orthogonal. It doesn't mean that the principles of Catholic social teaching, therefore, they're sort of hermetically sealed from economic concerns. That'd be a, a fundamental mistake. What it means is that they provide a set of moral and philosophical categories by which, if you're a faithful Catholic, you ought to reflect on these things. So, for instance, the intrinsic dignity of the human person, the the universal destination of goods, solidarity, subsidiarity, the common good. These are categories that you must and ought to bring to all of these questions. That's not going to answer every single question about, say, Uh, what level the the minimum wage ought to be set. That's a a prudential question based upon your sort of analysis and conclusions based on the sort of empirical details as far as you understand them. Pope Benedict XVI, so Pope Francis' immediate predecessor, actually put it very nicely this way before he was pope when he was the head of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. Here's how he put it. He was talking about... Morality and economics, and how we thought these things ought to interact. And I take this to be, uh, yes, Catholic social teaching is not a third way. It's not a full, completely filled out political system. But neither is it irrelevant to moral questions. Here's how he puts it. He said, a morality that believes itself able to dispense with the technical knowledge of economic laws is not morality, but moralism. As such, it is the antithesis of morality. And then he goes on to put it exactly the other way. He says, an economics that believes that it can dispense with moral knowledge and moral principles is not economics, but economism. What we need is a maximum of economics and a maximum of moral reflection. So that when these things come together, we have a a, a whole that's much greater than the sum of their parts. That's what I would say the task, at least for the faithful Catholic, uh, who is a faithful son or daughter of the church, was also appreciative uh, of, of the good that economic freedom brings to human beings. That that would say, I would say, ought to be our goal. It would not be to sort of separate these things. It would not be to say, well, Catholic social teaching is one thing, but you know, economics just involves a sort of empirical questions. Rather, it's this: it's distinguishing the economic ideologies that Pope Francis talks about, that Michael talked about, from the empirical results and discoveries and the theoretical insights of economics and integrating those things with the perennial principles of Catholic social teaching. And I would argue if that's done and that's done properly, a faithful Catholic can also be an advocate of economic freedom. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, We will now open it to Q&A. Please wait to be called upon. That's for the benefit of our viewers. Um, Microphone will come to you. And uh, would you please be so kind and make your question really short and in a form of a question so that we can get through as many of them as possible. So are there any questions in the audience? Um, The gentleman over here.
1: Uh, wonderful talks by everyone. Uh, my name is Stephen Shore. I have a question that of uh, that, uh, a, a, a dog that didn't bark. There's a classic Thomistic distinction between accidents and substance. And when the Holy Father talks about the capitalism, is he um, clear as to whether he is attacking unfortunate accidents or the very substance itself?
3: So far as I can tell, he tends not to make that distinction. Pope John Paul II and Centesimus did make a distinction like that with respect to capitalism. I'm, I, I would, frankly, love for the, the social encyclicals to make this distinction, but very often they don't. But Pope uh, uh, John Paul II, Saint John Paul II, said, if by capitalism we mean this, then no. <laughs> if by capitalism we mean this, then, yes, but let's call it something else, is essentially what he said. Well, the, se- the, the, the other one is actually the one that I would sort of would understand as the proper definition. And very often, I think, uh, not just Catholics, but many people, many critics of, of uh, free market economics, uh, don't distinguish between the metaphysical assumptions and the ideologies that might be a part of the sort of package of someone making the case for economic freedom and the real system itself, or just simply the question of. Uh, just the empirical question, okay, if we look at the types of systems and the type of institutions that societies have, in which of those societies do people tend to do better off or not? But what we often will do, and I did this, frankly, as a college student, is I confused, say, Ayn Rand, right, her, her metaphysical assumptions, and so frankly, some of her moral assumptions, uh, with the case for, for economic freedom. But the Catholic doesn't need Rand. There's, there's plenty of ways to make the case for economic freedom without that. And I would argue we don't want to do that. What we do if you want to be a Catholic that is sort of in this area is use authentically Catholic resources and and develop the case for economic freedom based upon our empirical knowledge and key theoretical insights that aren't dependent upon ideology. So, uh, you know, division of labor, uh, these sorts of things, the subjective theory of value versus the labor theory of value. These are insights drawn from from economic study, but they're not dependent on any particular ideology.
0: In the back. Uh, yes, oh, just, just, just one second.
3: Yeah, the man with the baby.
2: <laughs> I, I was wondering um, how you would define economic freedom and if that concept exists anywhere in Catholic social teaching in the papal encyclicals and formal documents.
3: Is this for anyone? Or, Michael? No. <laughs> I, I don't think... I don't think so. I mean there's the the, the passage I referred to in Centesimus Annus and then in a in a 2005 encyclical by Benedict the 16th. The only place in which there's a reference so far as I know uh in a papal encyclical to the role of of I forget if he uses the market or economic freedom in lifting what he says are billions of people out of poverty which may which may be uh, a, a bit of an exaggeration, but it's one sentence. And so there's a reference, in, in other words, he's aware of the fact that markets in India and China have lifted many people of abs- out of absolute poverty, but there's just really not a lot of reference to that. There's a lot of references to freedom, but it's really important to realize that the freedom that's discussed in, in, in Catholic teaching is not a merely sort of negative freedom from, it's a, it's a freedom for, what I would call sort of freedom for excellence and for developing our, our, our purpose and, and the end to which we are designed for.
2: Yeah, and I I, I think this is, is is my problem with with Jay's comments is is I don't think you, you can't just say well Rand you know we can dispose with this but keep that as if the, the the one did not flow from the other and I think this is is where the rubber hits the road uh, all the way down to the prudential judgments I think you know this idea that somehow we have these theories but then we have these prudential judgments uh, uh, where we can all disagree there's something to that obviously uh, and we all have different experiences. <clears throat> that we bring to our, our, our judgments of given, given situations. Uh, but prudential judgment is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. There are still things. What, what, what was just forced on Greece, what is about to be forced on Puerto Rico, is not just, and therefore it is not acceptable. And the economic system that makes those things uh, 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 necessary is itself implicated and indicted as unjust as well. And, I, I, you know, we can talk all we want about, oh, it's so rosy and wonderful and this. It's not. And, and I, I, don't, I don't think we can benefit from, from, from uh, uh, you know, uh, messing up. The only other thing I also just have to, to object to is this idea that, oh, you know, <clears throat> Pope Francis, the poor benighted Argentine, because all he knows is crony capitalism. I just, you know, crony capitalism to me is like you look at the, the current economic situation and the injustices that it perpetrates. It's like walking and you, and you glom onto that, cronyism. It's like walking into a burning house and complaining about the color of the curtains, I don't think that's actually the problem. And further, I find it really kind of insulting because I don't remember a single person ever saying to Pope Benedict that, oh, you know, he came from this, you know, snow globe Bavarian village. You know, Pope Francis is perfectly capable of speaking as the universal pastor of the Catholic Church. And this idea that you can only understand in, because he's, you know, an Argentine and all this, I think that's nonsense.
3: Yeah, I should respond to that since that's obviously a grotesque uh, reference to what I said. Uh, I didn't say that. (laughs) What I said is uh, read Pope Francis and look at Argentina and see if that helps you understand why he's saying what he says and if that shapes what he's saying. I, of course, didn't say everything he says must be relativized because he's from Argentina, which, of course, would be a ridiculous thing to say.
0: Let's take it from that side over there. Hi, my name is Nona Noto. I am a card carrying economist. <laughs> and I'm also uh, probably a disappointed Catholic. I was, um, this is the cater- I was really put off by the handouts. Um, C- you know, could car- we just ask the question? Oh, uh, yes, Forgive okay. me, but uh, okay, time is but that, short. Uh, do you, I guess, I. I want to say, isn't the question that even if you believe in capitalism, the Pope is saying we could do better? And in my childhood, there was what we call liberation theology, which my Irish mother okay. identified Thank with. Thank you. But Thank you very much. <laughs> so can we do better? And uh, what about liberation theology? Anybody wants to take that on? Um.
1: Well, I'll take the can we do better part because that's certainly an easy one. <laughs> sure. Uh, we can. I, uh, I, I, uh, uh, um, like both Jay and Michael Sean. I, I, I think that there's a there's a danger in flattening what the Pope has to say in the same way as um, political writers in the United States or members of political parties in the United States tend to flatten things for public consumption. I, uh, I think what the Pope has to say about this is enormously complicated and sophisticated, and I think it should be understood in the same way and not flattened. Uh, let me just give one uh, one example. When we talk about the economic recession that we went through in the United States in 2008 and that affected much of the Western world then and, um, and then has traveled around the globe to the other side, um, there's a tendency to say, uh, on the one hand, This is the fault of the bankers who were um, gouging people uh, and uh, just concerned with the profit motive and and packaging mortgages and reselling them and deceiving people. That's that's one theory popular on the left. There's another theory popular on the right that it's the fault of Barney Frank and of Fannie and Freddie, which forced the banks to make loans to people who shouldn't really be getting them. Um, When the Pope talks about this sort of thing, um, he 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 talks about both of those sides and a third side, which is the kind of materialism or the consumerism of the borrowers. He said, look, you're all guilty of the same sin, which is uh, a, a lust for consumption and for acquiring things. The bankers want to make more money. The government can't be trusted because they're human beings like the bankers and given to their own prejudices and desires and the consumers who who take out loans for 100% of their property value which they can't repay they too are uh, guilty of the same kind of materialism and and consumerism so we can all do better but we have to begin um with ourselves and he, so in in this kind of world there isn't uh um a solution that says that unregulated free market capitalism will be the right way to go he says we need the government to tame the excesses of capitalism, but we shouldn't trust the government either, and he knows that better than anybody, having lived in a Peronist system or under Fernández Kirchner. But there's also something for all of us. This is a personal message as much as it is a message of political reform.
0: Anyone wants to comment on the liberation theology aspect of the question? Does it have a place in the Catholic teaching today?
2: you know th- there were varieties of of liberation theology that were condemned in in the 1980s uh the condemnation was not and uh, there were other liberation uh, theologians who were not condemned um and, and the problem with it was was the condemnation focused on on what I spoke about earlier, the anthropological understanding of the human person that certain liberation theologians put forward and and a certain materialist uh, reductionism in, in our understanding of, of the person. Um, I have argued that you could cut copy and paste uh, that condemnation of liber- certain liberation theologians and apply it to say the Acton Institute uh, today. You'd probably just have to change some some uh, uh, direct objects. Uh, but they make the exact same anthropological mistakes in their effort to defend or, or to baptize free market capitalism, which is is a fool's errand that cannot be done. Uh, and, and at the level of endorsing Hayek and Pope Francis, I mean, at that theoretical level, where the the differences, as I as I quoted in my in, in my remarks, it's, they, they, these these are directly in contradiction with one, one one another. So I think that. But the the night he was elected, I, I spoke to a friend. And I had to go on, on a TV show and talk about him. And I didn't know much about him. A lot of us didn't. And he said, well, you know, the thing to remember, because the first thing we heard is oh, he had been opposed to liberation theology. And I knew that was an inadequate uh, thing because of what, what it left out. Uh, and he said, you know, the Latin American bishops never stopped asking the question, what does it mean to exercise a preferential option for the poor? even after this condemnation. This gets to earlier the discussion of the levels of authority, that, you know, the Pope, obviously, when he's speaking on the plane, that's a different level from when he's writing an encyclical. But I would say on this topic, more than anything, the level of authority could not be higher even on the plane because he's speaking straight from the gospel. And there is no higher authority in the Catholic faith than the, go- the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is, I, I, I think, where, where some of this, oh, we can parse this and its level of authority. I'm very suspicious of that because I think uh, he, he is speaking directly from the heart of the gospel. And we just, again, we Americans don't always like to hear that.
3: Just to add on liberation theology, I think Michael is right. Not every aspect of every liberation theologian was condemned, so it would not overstate that. I, I, I would object to certain aspects of liberation theology on empirical grounds, again. So just to give one example, uh, an idea from an Argentine economist called dependency theory, which held essentially that the, the Southern Hemisphere, or at least South America and Central America, were poor because the North was rich. It's a fundamental theme in the, the prominent liberation theologian Gustavo Gutierrez. If you read, read early editions of his Theology of Liberation, almost his entire argument hinges on this dependency that the poverty of the South is the result of, that there's a causal relationship between the, the poverty of the South and the wealth of the North. Even Gustavo Gutierrez, uh, in later editions of Theology of Liberation, based on the empirical details of economics, actually abandon it. So that's why I think empirical questions are very, very important here. They're just simply many questions we were talking about economics uh, that aren't merely theoretical. They're not merely philosophical or speculative. There's actually data on it. I think it's very, very important. And the, the sort of respect that the Catholic tradition has for science properly understood plays a role here to look at the empirical details on these things.
4: Yeah, um... I'm not an economist either, but I am a lawyer, and I was 15 years on the staff of the Senate Banking Committee. So I just want to read something here from the actual encyclical itself, where the Pope says, the principle of maximization of profits, frequently isolated from other considerations, reflects a misunderstanding of the very concept of the economy. Now you can have different types of capitalism in my view. In the United States, from World War II until about 1985 or so, we had a stakeholder theory of capitalism, that you had responsibility to- Out of respect point. to other others, could you please ask Yeah, the okay, question. the okay. idea that capitalism has responsibility to its workers, to its community, and to others. And then we shifted into this shareholder capitalism, where your only responsibility is to your shareholders, and the CEOs who did tie their own compensation to increasing in shareholder value. That's quite a different capitalism from what we used to have in this country 30 years ago. So I think that's the important thing to understand. You can have different types of capitalism. It's not capitalism as such, but whether capitalism can be moderated to produce benefits for the whole society. Thank you.
0: Anybody
3: wants to? Yeah, I, I wouldn't refer to either of those things as capitalism. I think you are talking about particular business models in which, for instance, managers are rewarded according to short term. Uh, right, uh, sort of monitoring of profits or something like that. I think it's a very bad business model, and I think there's a lot of evidence of that. And so I think on purely economic grounds, you could sort of make the case that, that's, that that may be and is in fact immoral to simply treat profits as the only end of a business. I do think that profit, the opposite of profit, is loss. So if it's not one of your indicators, you're probably going to be in trouble. Nobody's going to have a job. Uh, but the short-term indication and incentive structures that encourage managers and CEOs to work for short-term profits, but long-term destruction are very, very bad business models. I totally agree.
0: Gentleman over there.
2: um Given Pope Francis' views, what are his uh,
0: perspectives on taxation? And more broadly, what are his views on what the state should do to uh, battle inequality?
2: I don't, I don't know that he's specifically spoken about taxation, but I think I can answer your question in a different way. Um, there was a photograph in the uh, Washington Post about three weeks ago when they were having those horrible wildfires in Washington state. And it showed a man whose home had been saved, and he's shaking the hands of the firefighters. And he had on a T-shirt that said, lower taxes, less government equals more freedom. Now, that firefighter was not only a government employee, but I can guarantee you he was a union member, okay? And this guy whose house had just been saved was probably a Tea Party, because they, they make those T-shirts. Now, there's the, 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 the problem. Now, perhaps they should have let it burn, and he could have been free from the, the concerns of all those possessions, okay? But, you know, the man was on. I mean, it, just, it was like the people in, you know, who opposed Obamacare when it first passed, and they had the signs, keep the government hands off my Medicare, what you know i mean so you know the, again the government, the catholic church has never had this kind of hostile view which is you know goes all the way back to you know before the american revolution this hostile view of government as you know the leviathan that's not how catholic culture and 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 theology have ever viewed it um and, and I think that's, you know, to answer your question, we wouldn't view taxes as rapacious. I mean, I, when I ran a business, I remember the owner saying, unless there's 100% tax, you always still have an incentive to make more money. We forgot that in the, since the Reagan years, haven't we? I mean, and, and I, this idea that, oh, you know, if you raise the taxes, people will lose their incentives. they got to put their money in something. I just don't, I've, I've never bought that. Okay. Uh, one
0: question over there. In the back, be it a gentleman. Yes, this is for all of you because you're all in higher education. But uh, where do you see sort of the practical implementation of Francis's vision coming from uh, within higher ed
4: outside of sort of professional ethics courses?
3: Could you say, I didn't, like, where in higher education were this kind of thing? I didn't quite.
0: Yeah, where you can sort of
3: see an implementation of Francis's vision. Well, just to put in a plug for the School of Business and Economics at Catholic U, I mean, <laughs> shamelessly, but what we're trying to do is to bring together good uh, economics and economics as a science, but also economics was, was originally a part of, of course, of, of essentially ethics, of uh, of ethical philosophy. Uh, and the Business School at Catholic U is trying to bring together an integration of Catholic social teaching with uh, with economics and philosophy. So it's at least one place that's being done. I don't want to say it's the only Catholic institution trying to do this, but it is the, the mission of the School of Business and Economics to try that.
1: I'd second that point. One of the interesting points that Francis's predecessor Benedict always made was that universities are called universities because uh, they aspire to a universal um, uh, view of human knowledge that we should not segregate disciplines into economics and political theory and ethics and philosophy that these disciplines ought to be talking to one another and uh, one of the aspirations of Our university is to do that very thing economics Divorced from ethics brings about the kind of problems that the Pope is worrying about
2: And in our little Institute at Catholic you the Institute for policy research and Catholic uh, studies I shouldn't say that we have 50 fellows Uh, But we will keep going uh, on our erroneous autonomy uh, series. We'll do another one next June. Uh, We're just at the beginning levels of trying to put that together. And it focuses on these issues uh, very, very clearly. And and we keep uh, waving the Pope Francis flag.
0: Um, That's all we have time for. I am uh, deeply grateful to the panel for a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much for coming. Lunch is served upstairs. Uh, Please come again.